guardianship and some 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 custodial arrangements of what are going to happen. So if mom and dad both die, what are going to happen to the children? And, and it doesn't have to be super complicated. This can be a very, very general uh, statement that if mom and dad both die, I want the children to go to the grandparents, or I want the children to go to a sister, or I want the children to go to a brother, or I want the children to live with an aunt, uncle, or best friend, or something like that. But that needs to be established in writing because when you both die, if that happens and you have children, uh, the children become orphans and mm -hmm. the state has to place them. And so the state's going to place them, hopefully, with the closest family member. But that may not be necessarily the person that you wanted your children to go to. So what you have to do is you have to put this in writing and you have to give the state some clue as to what your intentions are. So if, if you want your kids to live with your, your brother and your brother lives in Wisconsin, uh, you need to say that. And uh, that way there the state knows what the intentions are of the parents. Now, the state is still going to do what's in the best interest of the children in all cases. Uh, at least they're going to try to. But they're going to place the children where the parents need, uh, hopefully where the parents uh, wanted and desired uh, those children to live. So that's the very most important part of a will when you have minor children is what your custodial intentions are. Now, you and the mother uh, or you and the father need to be on the same page on this. Uh, so if, if you're not, then what happens is, is that if one person dies, then obviously the other parent has the custodial interests in the children. Uh, and then if that person dies, then, then, then their will is uh, the controlling document. So you want to try to be on the same page. You want the wills to mirror each other when it comes to the custodial obligations. Now, in addition to custody, we're going to have something that deals with uh, money. And money is you know, obviously the, the purpose of a will. The, a will basically says, what am I going to do with my stuff when I die? Who is it going to go to? And if you have young children and they're going to be the beneficiaries of your estate, then you can't just write a check to a nine-year-old for, you know, $100,000. What would you do with that money, man? What would, come on, Alex. Well, <laughs> what would you if do with you that got money, a check Alex? for $100,000, <laughs> what would you do with it right now? I'd buy a car. A car? Oh, okay. Right, right, right. okay. Or a Lamborghini. Oh, oh. A Lamborghini. All right. <laughs> okay. A exactly. So, so there it is from the mouth of babes. Yeah. A nine-year-old would, uh, would go out and buy a Lamborghini if, if he inherited some, uh, some money. He didn't say toys, so that's good. That's good. Well, <laughs> Smart on your behalf, Tim. I'm surprised he didn't ask for a $100,000 Lego gift card because that's <laughs> probably what, uh, what his little brother would ask for. That's why we don't give money to kids because obviously they lack the capacity to make good decisions. Now, probably many adults lack the capacity to make good decisions <laughs> too. Uh, there's, there's plenty of adults that if they received a bunch of money, they would, they would spend it. But uh, that is uh, why we don't leave children money. So what we do is we leave, the ch we leave the children the money, but we put it into some type of a trust that is protected by a, a, uh, a competent adult. So that person is generally called a conservator or a trustee, but, but essentially when you die, you're going to take your estate and whatever money's in there is going to go into an account that's going to be protected from the children going out and buying toys and cars with it. Uh, you're going to have that money that's going to be sitting there 
uh, for their benefit, and then the trustee can use it as necessary. So if the child needs braces or the child needs uh, some type of um, health procedure or clothing or whatever, then the trustee can expend that money uh, on the uh, on the child as needed. And then at the you know when the child's an adult, 18, 20, 21, 25, whatever you decide, then the rest of the money can be uh, be put out. Now, come here, Alex. Let me tell you something about uh, how it's going to work for you. So if your dad dies before you're an adult, you don't get the money until you graduate college. How do you feel about that? I don't trust that <laughs> so that's okay. something that I did. It's a little gift I gave to my kids. Good idea. Yeah. You're not going to get any of the money if I die that, until you graduate college. That's, uh, that is very important to me because if I was alive, I'm going to be motivating my children to, to go to college and to, yeah, yeah, and to yeah. pushing them in that direction. So if I die before that happens, then at least from the grave, I am still motivating them. So, you know, hopefully if I die, there's a decent amount of money that would be in my estate, and that would motivate my children to continue on with what I uh, had hoped for them to do, and they won't get it unless they graduate college. So I suspect that anybody who's money interested would uh, would fulfill that uh, that request. I'm not requiring he graduate from Harvard or Yale or anything like that, but just that you go and you get a four-year degree. Yeah. Can we get that number out, Tim? Let's make sure some yeah, folks yeah, sure. have a question. You want to you come up and sing it, Alex? The, uh, the jingle? Oh, did the jingle? What's the number? Eight zero zero one thousand. 1000 Carl Anderson Law. That's right. You got it. All right. That's right. Eight zero zero one thousand. Yep. So I'm here, sitting here in the studio with my good friend, Mark. We're doing this show. It's live. Today's Saturday at 9 a.m. If you want to call in and talk about this, feel free to. Just call that in. It's going to ring right to the studio. We'll be able to talk about questions you have dealing with this. Or if you've listened to one of our other shows and you want to talk about one of the other subjects, feel free to call in that number. Eight zero zero one thousand. That's my number. That's uh, the number for my law firm. So if you're listening to this in the future, uh, you can still call that number. That'll ring right to my office uh, during the week. But for right now, it's going to come straight to the studio, 800-1000. Okay. So you can put some stipulations on when the children get the money and how they get the money. And what we're, uh, what we're trying to do is, is give them incentive and uh, pro- prospectus as to hey, you know, this is kind of what I hope for you, and this is what I want you to do before <clears throat> you inherit this money. Now, it doesn't have to be college. It can be anything. You know, I mean, once you get married or once you have children or whatever you decide to do, you know, these are, the, uh, these are kind of the, the goals of, of what you wanted for your children uh, before they inherit a lot, a lot of money. And, you know, there's really no safe age to give a lot of money to children. Um, I mean, there's, it's not like a, a child who is... 17 is going to make bad decisions, and a child that is 18 is going to make perfect decisions. Uh, that doesn't exist. It's not like an 18-year-old is going to make terrible decisions and a 21-year-old is going to make excellent decisions. There's no good age of when you're going to do this, but uh, we, you know, I think that the, the general rule of thumb is, is that the older the children, the better chance that they're going to be more mature and they're going to be in a more uh, protected position of not blowing through their money. Uh, of course, you know you could wait until they're 40 and they get the money and they blow through the money. There's no way to know. But uh, you're, you want to probably push that date of when they get the money out as far as you can till you get to a point of uh, uh, the best chance that they're going to make mature decisions with, uh, with inheritance. So, <clears throat> 
So you have guardianship and conservator. So those two things are going to be put in the will. Now, for the, for the majority of young families like mine, we're going to want simply our estate to pass equally to our children. So, I mean, that's what 95% of young families want is everything goes to my spouse and then everything goes equally to my children. Now, if that's what you want, then that's pretty much what's going to happen uh, in the law with, the, with a will, and that's going to be what would happen even if you didn't have a will. Uh, the law says if you don't have a will and you die, everything goes to your spouse, and then if your spouse is dead, everything goes to your biological children. That's the law. You don't need a will at all for this. And so if your children are adults and all you care about is that they're going to get your stuff and they're going to share it equally, you really don't even need a will. And that's, uh, that's important. Uh, so we're going to not worry so much about having a will if, you're an, if you have adult kids, but it is important with these little kids because it's important to deal with the conservatorship and deal with the... Uh, the minor aspects of the, uh, the custody arrangements and so forth. So what we want to do in this kind of a situation is first diagnose what are we going to do with our stuff and then who is it going to go to. So in the family of young children, if it's all going to go to the young children, we say everything's going to go to these young kids and it's going to be held in trust until they turn 25 and they are not allowed to get paid out until they graduate college or something like that or graduate, you know, or, or, you know, uh, serve four years in the military, or whatever it is, whatever that number is. You, you put that in the will, and then your trustee is charged with following those obligations. So they don't pay until the person has passed the milestone that you've asked them to pay, uh, asked them to cross. All right. Yeah. Hey, Tim, I got a question for you. Most folks are listening in now. 800-1000, 800-1000. When's the best time to do this? Now, I would imagine, for folks my age group or uh, 18, 19, 20, Now's the best time to talk to you about getting this plan in place? Yeah, so the best time to do it is before you die. Okay. Not, at the, <laughs> not when you're in the hospital uh, bed. Yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> and, and that's the thing is people think. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> but I'm, but I'm, I was slow on that, but I got it. <laughs> I got it. People think that, you We're know, live you, you got to be old. Right. Oh, you got to be old. Okay. You got to be yeah. old because, you know, this is, you know, obviously if you're old, you know, your chances of dying are, are greater. You know, there's a time where our natural lives are going to come to an end. But there's also, a, you know, as a young person, you can, you can die today. Right, right. It can happen. There's no, no understanding of when that moment is going to happen, when you're going to get hit by a bus or where you're going to, you know, just get in a terrible car accident or anything. Yeah, yeah. So you want to do these documents today, right, right now. You don't want to wait, especially if you have kids, because the... You know, if you and your spouse die in a car crash tonight on a dinner date and your children are orphans, what's going to happen to them? Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that Good has thing. to be thought about and, and, and dealt with. And again, now, if you're, you know, if you're if you're adult, you know, you're, you and your wife are going out to dinner and you have adult children and you, all you want is your children, you know, your assets to go to your children, then really a will is not that big of a deal because that's what the law is going to say in Virginia anyway. No big deal. But with younger children, minor children, it is very, very, very important to yeah. get this done now. What does it take? We give you a call, 800-1000, Do I need to bring any important documents? Uh, what do I need to do, just make the appointment? Yeah, I would make the appointment. So okay. so there's there's a lot of things. You know, if, if it's your intention, just everything's going to equally be divided to your children. 
I don't really need to know anything about your stuff, right? Because whatever, ha you know, your executor is going to deal with all of that. The person's going to marshal up all your assets. I don't really need to know, you know, where your bank accounts are, or how much money you have, or where your assets are. I don't need to know all that. Uh, now, if you have a specific asset that you want to go to somebody, then mm. you're going to need to know those things. So, like, if you have your, your, your grandmother's wedding ring and you definitely want that to go to your sister, uh, not your children, but your sister because you want to keep it in the family as a family heirloom or something like that, then you would definitely want to list those assets that would have specific requests uh, of, of where they would go. They're mm -hmm. called specific bequests, but uh, that is where you would, you would want to bring that stuff in. So I don't need to know that. Now, once we prepare the documents and we say, hey, everything's going to go to your kids equally, then what you want to do is go home and then create what I call a death letter which is basically a list of all of your assets. I remember that, yeah. You know, so you want to have your bank accounts, you want to have your uh, you want to have your life insurance policies, you want to have your real estate that you own, your vehicles you own. You want to have all this listed on here. Uh, your Facebook passwords, your email passwords. Mm -hmm. You want to have all that on there so that when your executor comes in and tries to find all this stuff, it's just right attached to the top of your will. Uh, and and as things change, you change them. Uh, so you change that. You change that single piece of paper. So you want to have that in place so that we know where you're at. People think that lawyers ha have a supercomputer and I mm -hmm. can type in something and I can find everything there is to know about you, and that's just not the case. So we use Google, we use Facebook, we use everything else that you would use to try to find things. And there's just not a system where I can type in your social security number and it tells me where all your investments are, where all your banks are, where everything is at. So we don't want to have uh, a lot of disclosure about that if it's just an equal thing, but if there's something specific, we're going to uh, to roll in that different direction. All right. So, what if you have a disabled child? That's mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. big issue. Yeah. <clears throat> so, in Virginia, we have you know our Medicaid rules in, uh, are such that you can't own a lot of things if you have a disabled uh, if you're trying to get Medicaid. So if I'm on SSI or I'm receiving Medicaid or I'm receiving some type of social assistance, I can't have a lot of assets. So if I have uh, three healthy children and one disabled child, then what do I do with that disabled child? We don't want to just cut him out of the, the picture, but at the same time, we don't want to cut the social services that he's receiving for his disability. And so what we do with a situation like that is, is that we create a separate trust for this child called a special needs trust. Now, a special needs trust is uh, a vehicle that holds this child's inheritance and is only passed to them with very, very limited restrictive uh, exceptions. So you know, your, your, your share of money that's going to this disabled child is going to be held in this special needs trust, and then that can only be used for basically living expenses and health and necessary expenses for this child. So, you know, if uh, if you put a hundred thousand dollars into a special needs trust, and the child needs to have braces, or the child needs to have something, and it's something that Medicaid doesn't pay for, then he can tap into that. Uh, special needs trust to be able to pay for those expenses. Now, when that child dies, whatever is left in that special needs trust then has to go to a nonprofit. Mm. 
So yeah. So it can't go to somebody to the other kids. Cannot go to anyone in the family. Nope. It's going to oh, go to man. some type of a nonprofit. Glad you told us that. And that is how the government can't touch the money because it never becomes anything that anybody could ever get. It's a vehicle that's there just to subsidize this disabled person, and then if it if it any of it remains at death, then it goes to uh, a nonprofit. And it can be any nonprofit. You can donate it to the SPCA. You can donate it to Leukemia Society. Whatever you want to do. You can go anywhere you want. So that is, that is how you handle a, a disabled child. And, you know, there are lots of disabilities that people have. And I'm not just talking about, you know, extremely mentally retarded individuals mm-hmm. that are unable to function. But, you know, maybe a high-functioning child with Down syndrome, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or a high-functioning uh, autistic child. But they're still on uh, disability because they can't function in society as a productive adult. So they're going to be on some type of state mm-hmm, assistance sure. for their entire life. So that's how you protect them, and, and you do that. Now, if you don't like the idea that the money has to go to the nonprofit at the end, then what you have to do is you leave it to your healthy children, and you, you hope that they take care of their mm-hmm. sibling, mm-hmm. and that's all you can do. And that is, you know, that is a decision, that the risky decision, because if you leave it, they can spend it any way they want. You can't restrict how they can spend it, uh, and so you, you leave it to them, and then they have to make the correct decision on taking care of that, uh, that uh, disabled child. All right. 800-1000. Thanks. 800-1000. The Anderson Law Power Hour with Attorney Tim Anderson right here on Power 1310 every Saturday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. The best talk in timeless soul is what you'll hear. But right now, you have the opportunity to talk with them live. Any question at all. We're talking about uh, wills and so forth today, but... Another topic, maybe you had a situation this week at work where you feel a little uncomfortable talking with uh, your supervisors with. Maybe HR wasn't necessarily the answer you needed, and you just sit down and talk with an attorney. Maybe you had that DUI situation. That was a really re- revealing show. Thanks for the uh, lessons there. 800-1000, custody issues. We talked about that also. Uh, divorce and so forth with attorney Tim Anderson here on Power 1310. 800-1000, 800-1000. 1,000. Make sure you share that with folks today. Facebook, social media also. 800-1000 is the number to call, but he's live here on Facebook with us this morning. 800-1000. Any questions at all to speak with Attorney Tim Anderson here on the Anderson Law Power Hour. All right. So let's go into our next topic, which is going to deal with probate. Now, we we talked about wills uh, on an earlier show, and what I've pretty much covered is very duplicative of the previous show, but we have not really dug into probate. And mm-hmm. probate yeah. is the very scary P word that people dread. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about probate because probate really, after you hear the explanations I'm going to give you, is not really that bad. All right. So probate basically means that I'm taking this person's stuff and I'm giving it to this person. All right, that's just the the tool, the the court procedures to do that. You know, if you're if if somebody dies, they have a house that's in their name or they have a car that's in their name, and what I have to do is I have to get it out of their name and put it in this person's name. All right, and that's that's what probate is. There's no way to take your name off of a title of a house or the title of a car and give it to somebody else without 
somebody signing a document to do that, mm -hmm. a deed or a okay. title or something right. like that. And so what probate allows is, is that somebody, I usually call an executor or an administrator, is going to have the authority to either sell those assets, turn them into cash, or transfer those assets to the children uh, or to the heirs, I should say. And so that's what probate is. So is it a legal proceeding? Yes. Does it take time? Yes. Is it fairly expensive? Yes. But, but there's no other way to do it. You have to have court supervision and court permission to be able to sign a name uh, for somebody who's dead to transfer that asset to uh, a third party. just has to be done that way. So when you die, you want to have the least amount of things in your name as possible so that the implications of probate are minimized. So how do you do that? All right. Real estate, number one. <clears throat> so if you are married or not married and you have biological children and you die and your will says, I want all of my real estate to go to my children equally, then when you die and that will is recorded in the courts, then the real estate automatically passes to the children. All right, That's automatic. There's no probate. It's literally just filing the will, and the will says any real estate that I have on death goes to my children equally. So automatically, real estate passes from, uh, from the dead person to the children. Now, this only applies to, to parents, parents and children. All right? This doesn't apply to brothers and sisters mm -hmm. and things like mm -hmm. that. But this is only from parent to children. So, <clears throat> and, that, and that also applies if you don't have a will. If you don't have a will, the state law says <clears throat> that your, uh, your real estate will pass equally to your, to your living heirs. So first your spouse and then your children. So your children will get a benefit of the real estate passing without having to do anything more than just taking your will and filing it with the court when, you're, when you've passed. No big deal. Pretty easy stuff. Uh, there's not a lot of fanfare. It happens pretty quickly, and that will move uh, just as quickly as it takes for you to get the death certificate to be able to open up the probate estate. The next part of real estate is, is well, what happens if you are leaving it to your spouse? Uh, first, you know, you and your, your spouse own a piece of property together and the one spouse dies. Does the other spouse even have to file a will? Generally, no. Generally, the, the will says that it's owned husband and wife with right of survivorship. And that basically means if you see right of survivorship, then that basically means that if you own property with somebody and they die, then you own the property entirely. And there's nothing you have to do. You don't have to file a will. You don't have to pay a lawyer. You don't have to do anything. They're dead. You have a death certificate. You own the property. Even though the property still says it's titled in the two of yours name, uh, the idea is, is that if you have a death certificate, then that means that property is 100% yours. Mm -hmm. Now, that's very common with husband and wives. And it can also be common with co-owners of real estate, uh, just in general, that are not married. So maybe a boyfriend and a girlfriend bought a house together, mm -hmm. or maybe the five siblings inherited property together, and it's, and it's uh, written in that way. So the, 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 the deed controls this, not a will, the deed. So the deed says at survivorship, then that other person owns the property 100%. Mm -hmm. 
Now, if the deed does not say survivorship, then the person, so if, if I own the property with my brother and there's no survivorship in the deed and he dies, then his share then follows whatever his will says. So now I own the property with whomever my brother's uh, heirs were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, and, that, and that's a choice. I mean, that's a decision you make with the, pro- with the co-owners of the property. But you probably want to take a look at your deed and make sure that if it's your intention, Good point. Yes. that yeah. uh, you want this co-owner of the property to take the property at death, that it says something, it has to say something about rights of survivorship. And it, it's very legalistic, but in the very first paragraph, it should say, to these people with right of survivorship. And that's what we want to, uh, we, that's what we want to see in the deed. And if it's not your intention for that to happen, then it shouldn't say that. So you may want to have us or some other attorney look at your deed just to make sure that it is written correctly. But if you see in your deed that it says survivorship, then that is, uh, that is something that means that they're going to inherit the property at death. Now, uh, a very funny uh, story in my office. Uh, some family members were in there uh, this week, and they were doing a will with me. And he, you know, we talked about uh, the deed, and I, and I gave him this. I said, "We need to look at the deed." And he goes, "What do you mean, deed? We don't have the deed. There's a mortgage on it. I don't get the deed till I pay for the house." And that's actually not true in Virginia. So in Virginia, the day you buy the house, the day you close mm-hmm. on the property, you get a deed. Mm-hmm. Now, you also may have put a mortgage on that property. That's called a deed of trust, right? So you get two documents. You get a deed, and then you get a deed of trust, which says your deed is uh, tied up by the mortgage. But you get the deed the day you buy the house. The day you close on the property Mm -hmm. or shortly thereafter, you're going to get the deed. So make sure you have that. And if you don't, it's out on file with the court. You need to get that. That needs to be in your personal papers of important things. So get that deed, make sure that deed is written correctly. Okay, so if it's my intention that a deed is written in such a way that my spouse gets the property on death automatically, then it needs to say, me and my spouse own the property with rights of survivorship. If it's my intention that I own property with somebody and my share of the property goes to my heirs when I die, it, needs, it cannot say rights of survivorship. That language should be absent from the deed. So that's what you want to look at with your deed. All right. That's how real estate works. So the, so, and that, and, and that, that's how real estate works in Virginia. Now, you may own real estate in another state. I can't comment on that. But I'm talking about how real estate works in Virginia. Now, if you have... Uh, so in your will, you want to say, I want my real estate to pass to my kids on death because probably the deed is not written you and your children right now. So at at death, when that will gets recorded, then your children automatically now own that that real estate. Now, if your children are minors, then the trustee of of the trust that you've created actually controls their interest in that property. Uh, and then that, that way there they can be sold or liquidated or done, done with, disposed of if it needs to be disposed of before the children are uh, adults. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. That's a lot of education. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate uh, it. Right, right. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, that, so that's, that's, uh, that sounded more complicated than it probably needed to be. But the, the very basic thing is, is that real estate usually is not that big of a deal if it's just going to your children. 
Right, right, right. Now, if it is going to somebody else, if you are donating it to uh, a charity, or you're donating it, to, or, or you're you're willing it off to uh, your siblings or something like that, then probate does kick in. Then we do have to do probate, which basically means we have to file the will and we have to go through the court procedures to be able to take the property out of this dead person's name and give it to this live person. Okay. All right. So. That takes time and that takes effort. And there's no, no easier way to do that than to go through the probate proceedings. Now, here's the little rub when it comes to real estate that everyone needs to know about. When the person dies, if there's a mortgage on the property, most mortgages have a clause that says they are due on death. It's called a due on death clause. That means that if you die, and you have a mortgage. The mortgage company can say all of the money is due on this immediately. And so it's not a particularly great idea to notify the mortgage company right away that somebody has died. Because if you do, they may call the loan right there, right there on the spot. Now, I'm not saying we should lie to the mortgage company. I'm not ever advocating to lie. But there's also not an affirmative duty to the day, you know, when your when your dad dies, you immediately call the mortgage company and say, "Hey, dad's died," and let them know that same day. You know, we want mm-hmm. to try to try to create a little bit of time to sort things out and to figure out what we're going to do without a mortgage company breathing down our neck trying to foreclose on the property because they, somebody's died. They know they're going to get that insurance money or have an opportunity. About that's it, right, right. That's right. That's the truth. Yeah. Okay. So we yeah. don't want to. We don't want to. We don't want to. Mm-hmm. You know, immediately tell them. Now. Some mortgage companies, and it's hit or miss, but some mortgage companies will allow the heirs, whoever they are, just to continue to make the mortgage payments so long as the mortgage is current, uh, even though the person has died. They, the due-on-death clause is something that a mortgage company exercises. It's not something they have to do. It's something they can do. It's their election. And so we want to make sure that you are in a position where if you want to keep the house, if you know husband and wife own the property together, mm-hmm. husband dies, wife still wants to live there and make the mortgage payments, uh, that you know we want to make sure that the mortgage company is in the position of not calling that loan or exercising their due-on-death remedies. So that takes a little bit of finesse, something the lawyer has to think about and talk about and, and discuss with the, uh, the people. Now, if you are an heir of property and the mortgage company is exercising the due on death clause, the only way for you to stop that is to pay the mortgage off. Or, you know, and, and that can be done by refinancing or whatever you have to do. But, it, but they would have a right to foreclose on the property and sell the property at public sale even though it has passed to you as an heir. Now, if, you, if that happens and the house sells at foreclosure, they get money for it, it goes towards the loan, and if there's any money left over after the loan is paid off, that would come to you as the owner. But frequently at foreclosures, people don't make, uh, there's, there's not excess that's coming out of these things, and so the money will pass to the, uh, the, the, uh, the bank and you would be divested. So if it is something that you are trying to keep, it's a house that you want to keep, then uh, as soon as somebody's died, 
you want to start looking at the options of refinancing that mortgage into your name as the heir so that there is no chance that the bank will come in and take that out. All right. Yeah, a serious business. Very serious. And yeah. and, and and again, it, this is, you know, we my very first show here. Bankruptcy touches everything. So I've had heirs have to come in and file bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy, to stop a foreclosure oh that, uh, on heir property so that they would have time to, to deal with whatever the, the indebtedness is. And, and so that there is always a bankruptcy option, but can, can you imagine having to file bankruptcy oh you know, only to protect heir property? You know, it's unbelievable sometimes what people have to do, but that's just how it is. And if it's... And sometimes people have to make those decisions to file bankruptcy to stop stop uh, a foreclosure on estate property, so that uh, they can preserve the wealth or the or, or the the value of the property for the benefit of their other their other siblings. Yeah, so, don't wait. If I may interject, don't wait. Okay, <laughs> don't wait. And like I said, I was being facetious, but uh, do this now. Talk with you now. Get the will. Get all of that. All your documents in order now. Yep. yep. Yeah. And 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 you know not. The probate is, you know, we're dealing with death and not the day somebody dies and not the day after somebody dies and not the day of the funeral. But pretty quickly after that, you need to get in and talk to talk to us. You need to get in mm-hmm. and talk to us about the probate implications. There are lots of things that happen very, very quickly in the beginning. Now, probate takes forever. I'm not going to understate that. It can take a long time to go through. But the very beginning of the case can be just a whirlwind of legal sure legal drama. Eight zero zero one thousand. Pardon me. Eight zero zero one thousand. You're listening to the Anderson Law Power Hour with Attorney Tim Anderson here on Power Thirteen Ten. I'm Mark. Glad to be along with you here on this beautiful, beautiful Saturday. I know he's got those wheels in your brain thinking, and now it's the action step to get all of these documents in order. What was the reference? I, I went out and bought one of those binders. Yeah, what, what's was that? What you call it? What did you call it? The you said the death letter, but all of this should go in the binder or and in, of course in the safe, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so mine is just in a three ring binder. Yeah, you know, when the, I, got one I have I have all my my wills, mm-hmm. my my trust documents. I have my insurance policies, bank account information. Yeah. It's all in this one little spot, and uh, and and that's that's very important to have because you know uh, when when people die. You know, when granddad dies and you're going in and cleaning out his stuff, you know, you're pulling out drawers and you're finding things that, you know, mm-hmm. there's pieces here and pieces there and something's under the mattress and something's up in the closet. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really difficult. It's very, very difficult for, uh, for family members, grieving family members yeah. at that, to try to be able to piece together what was his intentions. And, mm. and so make that easy on your family. Do them a favor and put it all in one spot. So it's a matter of grabbing a binder and knowing where it is, and and everything is there that could possibly be told about your financial affairs. Yep, eight zero zero one thousand, eight zero zero one thousand. Very easy to remember. Most important, make sure you make the call and get the process started. Eight zero zero one thousand. Attorney Tim Anderson here on Power thirteen ten live in the studio to take your call. Any questions at all about what we're talking about probate or a DUI? Any other questions? Very astute, very keen attorney. And I like what we uh, what you shared with us when we first started the show. You're a street lawyer. You'll meet people right where they are. Uh, within minutes, you'll be able to talk with an attorney to get the process and get your legal rights uh, protected. 800-1000. 800-1000. Join us live every Saturday morning as we're on the air here with Power 1310, live Saturday mornings from 9 to 10. But right now, again, you can call 
800-800-1000. You don't have to say your name. You don't have to say anything. Just uh, uh, shoot your question across the air, so to speak, and he'll answer it here live on Power 1310. 800-1000. 800-1000. All right. So let's talk about power of attorneys. So a power of attorney is letting somebody make decisions for you when you can't make them. So, Alex, if I was unconscious and I broke my leg and you were my power of attorney, what would you do for me? Um, I'd grab the nearest phone and call 911. All right, good. Excellent. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to appoint you to be my power of attorney with that, <laughs> with that good advice. So, that's, that's it. So, if you can't make a decision, you have to make, a, you appoint somebody to make a decision for you. That's called a power of attorney. Now, there are two types of power of attorneys in Virginia. There's medical and financial. So medical is uh, exactly the, the, uh, the situation that, uh, that Alex just described, is I'm unconscious. I can't make a decision. What is he going to do on my behalf? Now, Alex doesn't have to have my power of attorney to call 911, all right? That's, you know, anybody can call 911 and, and render, uh, render emergency care. But Let's just say that I'm in a situation where maybe I'm unconscious and I was in a bad accident and the doctors give the family two choices. Either we do this procedure or we do this procedure, all right? And there's two different outcomes of what could happen. This may work or this may work, but one of these may lead to death and one of these may lead to recovery. We don't know. We're just going to leave it up to you to make that decision. You need to have somebody making those decisions for you. Mm -hmm. You need to trust somebody to make those decisions. Usually, that would be your spouse. But maybe it's a brother or a sister or a best friend or an uncle or an aunt or even a parent. You need to have somebody be able to stand up and say, I know this person and this is what they would have wanted. This is the way that they would have wanted it to go. Uh, do uh, Do I take a a very risky procedure, or do I take a more conservative medical approach? What is the the right thing? Now, this is not a situation where you're being wheeled into the emergency bay by ambulance and doctors are are performing life-saving mechanisms. You know, the emergency room is for one reason and one reason only, and that is to make sure you don't die. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, I realize people use the emergency room for lots of other uh, different reasons, but the emergency room's core function is is to stabilize you and make sure you're not going to die and then to get you out of there and let somebody else deal with whatever's going on. So their only core function is to make sure you don't die in the emergency room. There's nothing that your power of attorney can really do at that stage because they are providing emergency services. The law gives them broad discretion to make the decisions that are necessary to save, to stabilize you and save your life. Now, when you're moved up to the hospital floor, or you're moved into a position where uh, now it's going to determine what kind of treatment you're going to receive or what kind of care you're going to receive. That is when the uh, power of attorneys really kick in. This happened uh, in my family where I was a family member's power of attorney and they were in intensive care. And they were in intensive care for about a month. And I had to make decisions for that family member on a daily basis. Do we do this procedure? Do we do that procedure? Everything is going on multiple times a day in uh, intensive care, and I was constantly having to make decisions for this family member because I was their their power of attorney. 
So that could happen to you, and if that happens to you, you want somebody to be able to make the decisions that would not be the decisions they want, but the decisions you want. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe you are very sick. Maybe you are in the end of your life. Maybe this is a terminal condition, and you don't want a lot of fanfare to, to continue on. You want to be able to have some type of a natural death. Well, your power of attorney can help you do that because when the doctors come in and they're trying to revive you and stabilize you and do all of that, you may have your power of attorney say, look, here's a do not resuscitate order that they've signed. They don't want to have, you know, to have their heart restarted. They don't want life-saving medical procedures. They don't want uh, to have uh, a respirator put on them to help them breathe. They want to be able to pass. These are decisions that your power of attorney makes, so you need to have these in place. Now, the big problem, we talked about this last week, is you have to do this before you become incompetent. And incompetent means either you're unconscious due to a, you know, you're in a coma or something like that, or, you know, if you have Alzheimer's or dementia or some type of a brain disease and you are mm -hmm. unable to make decisions for yourself, you can't have your, your, your father or your grandfather sign a power of attorney if he has Alzheimer's and thinks that Jimmy Carter is still the president. Mm -hmm. So you have to uh, do these things while you, while you are competent and while you are alive and, uh, and, and in a position of uh, being able to make reasonable decisions. And then when you have these documents in place, if you go down or if you become incompetent or something bad happens, this person can make these decisions for you. This person is your power of attorney. This person acts on your behalf. This person is your, your champion, your fiduciary, and is making the decisions for you that uh, affect both your money and your finances and your, your, your medical. That is extremely, extremely important to have in place on that day so that, the, uh, that when these things happen, and that can happen any day, that somebody is able to make those decisions. So... Power of attorneys. Pick somebody appropriate. Pick the right person. Don't pick your nine-year-old. Okay, I can't. Mm -hmm. I would not pick Alex to be my power of attorney. Not, not that I. Uh, he's very disappointed. He can't <laughs> be my power of attorney. But Alex couldn't be my power of attorney. All right. He's nine. He can't make the, the decisions that are important like that. You have to pick a reasonable person. You have to pick an adult. Don't pick your parents to be your power of attorney if they're in their 80s and 90s. Okay. You know they're. You know they're. They're probably not the right people. Pick somebody who is here, local, and who can make uh, fulfill your wishes and who you can trust to fulfill your wishes. Not making their decisions, making your decisions. Okay, finally, the, the, the last little document that we will have you prepare is something called a living will. And a living will is a very simple document. It basically just says, if you are in a brain-dead situation due to some type of an accident or injury <clears throat> and there's no real recovery opportunity, that you can have life support removed. Life support meaning a respirator. So a ventilator that is keeping you alive, helping you breathe, you are allowed to uh, do that uh, declaration that says you should not die uh, or you should die. And it's your, it's your choice. You decide you know, which one. Maybe you want to be kept alive forever as long as possible, uh, but maybe you don't. And so you have these things put in place. So all of that is put in place, and then that is all incorporated into you know, these, these estate documents. And then when we flip all this over to probate, when all these documents are in place, 
we know what your clear intentions were. Now, here is a very, very important piece of advice I want to give anybody who's listening to this show, which is called uh, pre-death planning. <clears throat> when you die, what happens to your body? You know, ask yourself that question. What, what happens to my body? What do I want to happen? You can't really put that in a will. You know, you're not giving your body to somebody. I mean, I guess you could donate your body to science if you wanted to. But what happens to your body? You know, are you going to be buried? Are you going to be cremated? Mm -hmm. Are you going to uh, be, you know, and where are you going to be buried? And where do you want your ashes spread if you're going to be cremated? And, and all of that. That needs to be worked out mm -hmm. before you die. Because here's what happens, and I've been through this myself. Uh, I've, I've buried family members before. You go, your, your family member dies, and you go to the funeral home, and I'm not disrespecting the funeral home, right, in any way, but you're extremely vulnerable when you're walking in there. Right. And you want, you know, this is the last thing you can do for your loved one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's the, the $1,000 coffin that's made out of metal, and it's kind of crappy, and then there's the $15,000 mahogany coffin. Right. And, you know, I mean, I really love my family member. What do I do here? Do I, <clears throat> I'm never going to put him in this cheap metal box. I really want to send him off with flair and flavor. I mean, that's how you feel. Mm -hmm. Sure. But reasonably, that's stupid. That's dumb. Mm -hmm. Because you're taking this box and you're putting it in the ground. Right. And, it. and that's it. That, that's it stays it. there yeah. forever. Yeah. So why are you spending Fifteen or twenty thousand dollars on a coffin, when we're talking about something that's just going to go into the ground, mm -hmm. and so take this guilt and this obligation off of your family, and go to the funeral home now and do a contract with them that says, "When I die, I want the cheapest coffin. I'm paying for it right now. I want the cheapest coffin and the and the and the cheapest vault." I'll tell you what. This funeral home told us one time. They said. When, you know, I, I didn't know anything about putting somebody in the ground, right? But when you put somebody in the ground, you know, they dig a hole, and then the coffin goes in the hole, right? Well, the funeral home says, well, are you going to put a vault in there? Right. Uh, That's next Okay, well, well, what's a vault? Well, a vault is this concrete box that goes into the ground that keeps the, uh, the coffin from uh, leaking, or, you know, water from leaking in there. And, you know, you're like, well, I guess so, but... But really, that's dumb. Who cares? It's a, it's, it's, the person's dead. That's Who cares it. if worms get in there and, yeah. and moisture gets in there? It's crazy <laughs> right. how much guilt you feel when you go into the funeral homes on what's, you know, what, what you're paying for. So take that obligation off of your family. Yeah. Uh, you know, take, say, look, uh, you know, when I die, I want to be cremated. It's done. It's already worked out with the funeral home. And when I die, I want to be buried. And I've already got the, the, the plot of where I want to be buried. And I've already made the contract. So when you die, it's automatic pilot. Your family doesn't have to make a single decision. Mm -hmm. Do that for them. Because otherwise, your family is going to spend a lot more money than, than, than is absolutely necessary. You should be a reasonable person and get the cheapest services that you can possibly get. The cheapest box. The cheapest, you know, who cares if there's, if you're, you know, if there's water leaking in. That's crazy. Let that all go. Get the cheapest way to do it and put you in the ground or 
cremate you or however you want to do it, but do it as inexpensively as possible. Make that contract yourself with the funeral home so the family avoids that. Yeah. You will do your family a tremendous favor by, by taking that very simple step. Very candid, very truthful. Thank you, Tim. That's right. There's that emotional element that comes into play, and we want the best, but in all practicality, you know, three, four, five thousand dollars may get the job done, so to speak, versus fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. Absolutely, and you know, and and the person who's signing the paper is the person who owes the money too. So you know, you're dealing with the funeral home; you're on, you're the one on the hook. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you wanna you wanna do that. So we went through that with a family member. As soon as that happened, we made uh, we made a contract to make sure that other family members were, uh, you know, were were not there. And fortunately, for the person that I had to do this with. Uh, I knew their intentions very well, and we were able to uh, get the uh, the you know the funeral homes aren't going to call it the cheap the cheapo uh, funeral service, but we pretty much got the cheapo funeral service because that's you know that's what he wanted, and he knew he knew better. Um, I mean, even so much as you know whether there are springs in the back that hold that give the lumbar support, it's crazy. Oh my, it's crazy. <laughs> okay. All right, so we do have a question on Facebook Live um, from Michael. Uh, who actually is a uh, uh, very uh, good friend of mine and an excellent plumber. He works for Drain Masters. Uh, he actually owns Drain Masters. Um, so Michael says, is there a certain amount of time needed uh, to have this done before you start to become sick? So the question uh, that Michael's asking is, mm-hmm. is uh, can you endorse a will and power of attorneys if you are sick? And the answer to that is yes, you can do that. So long as you are competent. You know, you can have stage four lung cancer and you could have three months left to live Mm. and still be competent to be able to make uh, decisions. It's all about your mind and if your mind is capable of understanding right and wrong. So if you have that decision to make right and wrong decisions, then you are able to Mm -hmm. uh, endorse these documents until that point. Now, if you are sick, it is a really good idea to have your doctor write a very small letter that says, hey, I've evaluated this guy. He's competent, although very sick. He's competent to make his medical and financial decisions. And as long as he's competent, that person can sign the document even when they are uh, at the end of their life or, or sick or whatever. It's all about their mind. Uh, if their mind still works and they can read and write and they can understand what they're doing, then they can sign those documents and those would be legal documents. We have gone to people's bed, deathbeds in the hospital and had them sign documents as long as they understand what they are doing. Uh, that is all that the requirement is. You use the word we, so it's the attorney, uh, family member, or spouse, and the doctor. Well, yeah, so, so to, sign a, to sign a will, you've got to have three people. Okay. You've got to have the guy who's signing it. You've got to have an, a notary. Actually, you have to have four people. The guy who's signing it, the notary and you have to have two witnesses. And the notary and the witnesses are both testifying that this person was competent when they signed the documents. And so, so yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, it's something that we have to, uh, we have to do, and, and you can do it at a hospital deathbed. You can do that if it's necessary uh, to have it done at that time. But uh, what a disservice you've created to your family by waiting that long. So try to get these things done while you are healthy and competent so that there's, uh, there's not this frantic fury at the end of your life to have things done. I've had people br- brought into my office that are borderline. Like, I can't tell if they know what they're talking about. Mm. And, and if, if I can't tell 
that they know what they're doing, right. then I won't let them sign the documents. I'll, you know, look, I, I appreciate you are talking to me and you are articulate and you're a nice guy, but I don't know that you know what you're doing. And if that's the case, then I'll send them off to the doctor and have the doctor write a letter. And okay. if the doctor writes a letter, fine. But uh, it's not, I'm not a doctor. I can't, I can't say if somebody's competent or not. All I can say is, is I may have some suspicions. And so I'll send them off to the doctor. So we would want that. Uh, we would want that. So, Mike, I hope that answered your question. It, you know, it's hard to ask a lawyer a question without them giving you a 20-minute response. <laughs> but uh, the, the answer to the question is, is, yes, it can be done at any time so long as they are uh, competent at the time of death. All right. Okay. So what we've covered today uh, deals with a lot of things. One, we've dealt with the issues involving probate, the issues involving wills, the issues involving these, uh, these important uh, power of attorneys, and these issues that deal with living wills. All right. So the last thing that we want to talk about is life insurance. All right. Life insurance is important. Alex, come here for a second. Pop up here. Tell me what life insurance is. All right, there we go. Good. I'm actually glad to hear that. Alex is, uh, does not know what life insurance okay. is. That's a good thing. But, you know, here's the thing. A lot of people don't know what life insurance is. They don't understand it. They understand that life insurance is something that maybe they should just have $10,000 on or $20,000 on or $100,000 on. Here's what life, life insurance is. It is a policy that pays money at death. All right, we all probably understand that. But what, how much money do I need to have yeah, in life insurance yeah. uh, at death? So here's the, here's the issue. I have children, all right? I have, two, I have three children, and they're, they're all under the age of 18. I have, I'm married. You know, if I die, I'm the sole income provider of my family. So how much money do I need to leave them to make sure that they can finish out the upbringing of the, of, of the family and move forward? Because if I die, I don't want anything to change in my household. I want, you know, I want everything to run exactly like it is. I don't want the house to have to be moved. I don't want to have the house to shut down. I don't want to have to have them downgrade or do anything. So what I have to take is, is however my youngest child is, and in my situation, he's five years old. So he's got to get to at least 18. So that's 13 years of money. And I got to take 13 years and multiply that times whatever my income is. Mm -hmm. And that's how much life insurance you need, right? That's it. That's the, that's the number. So if, you know, and I'm not going to say how much money I make, but let's just say easy math. If, if you make $100,000 a year, then you need a million three in my situation of life insurance. Because if I'm making $100,000 a year and we're living on that, that's our life, and I die, then I want 13 years of $100,000 coming in so that my family can survive in that, in that situation. That's what life insurance is. Now, when I'm 60 or 70 and my kids are all grown and everybody's fine, do I need life insurance? Probably not, right? Because at that point, I'm probably on some type of fixed income retirement. That money's coming in, you know, and we're living on that 
And when I die, you know, assuming that fixed income stays the same for my spouse, then I probably don't need life insurance. Uh, so if you are older, you don't need life insurance nearly as much as you do if you are younger. But there is no reason to buy a $100,000 term life insurance policy if you have a young family. It's just not going to do anything. I mean, it may help a little bit, but it's not going to do anything. You have to have a sufficient amount of money to be able to pay your family to keep them in the lifestyle that they're in until they're, they're adults. And that's the math, and that's what you have to, have to think about. All right, got a Facebook question, and we're almost out of time, but let's just read it. All right, this is from Bonnie. It says, is it possible if I pass to leave a second vacation home to my husband, but if something happens to him after that, to guarantee it to my brother because, uh, it, okay, gotcha. So if, can you leave something to a spouse and then uh, make sure that if that spouse dies, it goes to somebody else? Yes, that is a very uh, a legal way to do that. I can help you do that. Uh, it's called the remainder interest. Uh, I don't have enough time to talk about it because we're about we have about a minute left. But you, if you call me eight zero zero one thousand, we can uh, definitely uh, talk about that on Monday. All right, my name's Tim Anderson. I'm an attorney here in Virginia Beach. I brought my son Alex here with me. I'm gonna let him sing the jingle to close us out. So, uh, Alex, when people need to call, who are they gonna call? Eight zero zero one thousand. Call Anderson Law. All right, thanks for listening. See you next week. Wait, 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 where are you guys going? What? Where are you going, Tim? You cannot get out of this studio today, nor you, Alex, without saying happy Mother's Day. Oh, that's oh, right. Man, happy on, Mother's man. Day to all oh, the mothers yeah. on Hampton Roads. Yeah, happy Give your Mother's mama Day, big, Hampton Roads. Woohoo! Give your mom a big hug and a kiss on the radio, Alex. That's right. Wow, that's an excellent point. Thank you, Mark, for that. <laughs> happy Mother's Day, Hampton Roads. <laughs> all right. All right, guys. We'll catch you next week, every Saturday morning, 9 to 10 a.m., here on Power 1310, the Anderson Law Power Hour with attorney Tim Anderson, virginialawoffice.com, located in Virginia Beach satellite offices throughout Hampton Roads. And just remember this program is for informational purposes only, does not constitute attorney-client privilege, and if you call or utilize social media, that your voice or question can be used within the context of this broadcast or promotion. So we'll catch you next Saturday morning. Remember this number, pass it along to someone, 800-1000, Catch you next Saturday morning here on Power 1310. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This has been the Anderson Law Power Hour with attorney Tim Anderson and host Mark Rawlinson. Saturdays at 9 a.m. on 1310, The Power. This is WGHAM, Newport News, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, 1310, The Power.